Did I interest you in a stamp? Yeah, give me a stamp. Oh. No, give me a purple one. Oh, I'm sorry we haven't any purple ones. I could uh, paint one for you. I don't want a painted one. person hasn't got any rights in this country anymore. The government even tells you what color stamps you gotta buy. Live from the U.S. and Canada Postage Stamp Distribution Center and Wet Market in Wuhan, China, this is the award-winning stamp show here today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. This is episode number 351, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Jim. This is Albert. This is Don. And today we are going to discuss quickly the, uh, well, not even quickly, the, there was a new lens that came out digitally, so I haven't gotten the paper variety yet, but Jim, why don't you go ahead and cover this real quick? Well, we've spent a couple of uh, discussions on our podcast about counterfeit U.S. stamps and um, measures that Great Britain was taking to prevent counterfeit. This is a report, uh, an article by Charles Snee on Counterfeit Canada. It's the far and wide coil stamps that were issued in 2020. And the um, stamps were first reported in uh, the April issue of the Corgi Times, which is the official newsletter of the Elizabethan II study group. These fakes are believed to have been printed in China, according to the Times report. And I got kicked off Facebook for saying that. Yes, that's why I mentioned it. <laughs> and you're not on Facebook right now, are you? Nope. I, I, if they're going to kick me off of Facebook for saying that the counterfeits are coming from China, then they can go ahead and have their website. I'm going to go over with Elon Musk. <laughs> <laughs> Although, quote-unquote, from the article, although the counterfeits do not have the characteristic underprinting, they do have the backprinting indicating the number of stamps left on the roll. So the underprinting is kind of a security feature that's added to their liner paper mm -hmm. on their stamps. And these counterfeits apparently do not have that. Yeah, but it only works, oh, your security features only work if somebody actually looks, looks at, at it. the stamp. I mean, that's the thing with U.S. We can detect here at PSC, it is simple for us to uh, look at it. So if it's simple for us, it should be incredibly simple for the post office to put some little scanner or something when they're canceling the, the covers. You know, just check them check real them. quick. Well, this, this particular issue 
um, when you look at it, it is more grainy. The the uh, counterfeit is more grainy, but the um, uh, cuts, the die cuts, are pretty much right on. So, so, so hold on, hold on. So Canadian counterfeits are worse than U.S. counterfeits. They are. But Canadian genuine stamps are far better than U.S. genuine stamps. Yeah. So we're beating Canada. Yeah. yeah. Why is Go the, team. Why are the Chinese picking on Canada? <laughs> They're so adorable. <laughs> anyway, so that just popped. When I saw that article, I just kind of popped in my mind because we had been discussing so much on the U.S. fakes. And well, apparently anybody in the West is fair game. Yeah. And I have no clue why they wouldn't be. So... Anyway, last podcast, um, I was talking about U.S. number ones and said U.S. number 11s, and Jim corrected me and said you said 11s meant number ones, and I said, well, I got number 11s on my head because that's what I always collect. Well, today we are going to discuss the 1851 three-cent issue, which is U.S. number 11s and U.S. number 10s. And we'll, in future podcasts, we'll discuss the one cent, the 10 cent, the 12 cent, and then we'll discuss the uh, five cent, and then we'll go into the 1857 issues. So, uh, Albert, you're back here. Why don't you uh, give a real quick primer on the 1851 issue? Um, they were first, they were issued by the government. There's an official first day of July 1, 1851. And, um, by definition, the orange, brown, or Scott number 10 and 10A stamps are stamps that only come from plates zero, plates one early, one intermediate, two early, and five early. And they're mostly used between uh, January 1, excuse me, July 1, 1851. You see them used as late as maybe November, December of 1851. There is, uh, um, there are stamps in the orange brown color that come from usually come from plate one late that are there i think the earliest known usage is late 18 late october of that year and those are called experimental orange brown number 11s and they're they're given quite a premium in the catalog um but the best way that you can tell what something is is uh, if it's on cover is is that anything that's between July and middle of October 51, you're basically assured that it's number 10. And after that, you're going to have to actually plate the stamp or actually look carefully at the stamp. Okay, so you said plates. First of all, you said plate zero. Why would they put a zero on a plate? Because it, the, it was a plate that was was used but did not have a plate number assigned to it. No plate number, so you, they just assumed that it was plate number zero. And um, It doesn't say plate zero in the margin. Yeah, that, that always sort of threw me off when I was first beginning. It's like, plate zero? Why would they number it plate zero? I don't think they realized that they needed to number their plates. Well, actually, uh, why don't you describe plate number one early, intermediate, and late? Because plate one early didn't have a plate number either. In its earliest stage, they didn't have a plate number at that I don't even think I don't even think the plate numbers on one, plate one early... It wasn't until either August or September '51 that it actually plate one actually did get a plate number, mm-hmm. and uh, um, 
the, impre the impression of plate one earlier, incredibly fresh, and the lines are very, very sharp. Um, you have both Scott number 10, which is a design without any recut inner lines, and then you have Scott 10A, which are the stamps that have recut lines on, on, on one side or the other, or both sides. Um, but most of plate one early, the lines are not recut. Yeah, the, the um, and I, I actually go over this in my exhibit. There was a certain amount of artistry, which was done in 1851, which they totally got rid of in 1857, especially when they started mass producing the later plates, plate number uh, uh, t 12 and above, or actually 15 and above. Um, they paid a lot of attention to the image and they'd reinforce different parts when the transfer roll was done. You know, they'd, they'd touch up the plates. And uh, that went away with time. The artistry went away in favor of mass production. So like uh, Albert was saying with the uh, fine lines, Actually, I would say that the way to tell a number 10 from a number 11 is, first of all, you know, the color. It's got to be orange-brown. And by the way, when you say orange-brown, the second word is always the most important for the color. So orange-brown is a brown stamp, not an orange stamp. So it's sort of a brownish stamp with an orange hue to it. The second word is always the most important. So it's an or it's a brownish stamp, and the fine lines that Albert mentioned are, are on his breast and on his toga. Very, very clear little detail lines, shading lines that wore away very quickly. Um, again, I love this issue. The printing company who did this printed banknotes and when you're printing banknotes the print run when they make the plates um, you do about 20 to 25,000 impressions and then you have to clean the plate and then you do 20 to 25,000 more impressions well plate number one they did the plate did 20,000 impressions, then they cleaned it, and that's when plate one intermediate went in. And then they did, instead of doing 20, 25,000 more, they did like 50,000 more. Then they cleaned the plate a third time, and that's the late state. And then they did like 150,000 impressions. So these plates did way more than they should have. And so that's why when, he, uh, when Albert was talking about the fine detail lines, these plates were used for so long that in the end, the detail just evaporated. I mean, you can see plate one from 1855, and there's like no detail. It's all worn away. So uh, I particularly like this stamp, obviously, for the reason there, but that's one of the ways you plate them. And that's one of the ways you tell number 10s from number 11s. And uh, So the number 11s, to be concise then, don't have that detail. 
They may have the orange-brown color because it's the experimental color, but they don't have the detail. Well, the experimental orange-brown is two things. First of all, in my opinion, it is way over catalog value. It's listed at $300 in the catalog. An experimental orange-brown is worth more than a number 10. And the color is difficult to tell. Um, It sort of... well, to go back to the way or what Albert was, well, to go back to what Albert was saying, plate number one in the two early states is always going to be a number ten, and in the late state is always going to be a number eleven, no matter what the color is. And these colors, first of all, these stamps were printed since you know over seven years, and. They got the pigments from the lowest bidder, and they got the oils from the lowest bidder, and half the time they were mixing the inks at night when they just had gas lights that lit up the place. And uh, so there's a huge, gigantic, enormous variety of colors on these. I mean, you can have stamps that are just, you can get a cover from the same post office that was printed or that was mailed one day and a week later and the stamps will be distinctly different. I mean, the colors are just all over the place because of the way they mix the ink by hand and did not have a regular supplier of the ingredients. Another question that comes to mind is on the type 2 with is the re-graved um, side mm-hmm. is there premium for or um, collector preference for those that only have one side recut as opposed to having both sides most of the uh, most of the time you see them they're both cut but I have seen copies that are only have one cut one side cut US number 10 with no ink cut recut in your lot um is actually a kind of rare stamp. Mm-hmm. The premiums that are listed in the Scott's catalog are too low, in my opinion. But demand isn't there yet. Because so many of the stamps, you know, had half of a line recut, or one side recut, or both sides recut. And so, US number 10 is actually a pretty scarce stamp to find one with no intercut lines whatsoever. I read a, I read an article in Lens one time that mentioned that, that said that the author's opinion, and I apologize, I don't remember who the author was, but the author's opinion was is that almost all U.S. collections that he's looked at don't have a real number 10, that, that they're, they're that rare. Yeah. And he was talking not at specialized collections, but talking about just general collections. In the uh, October sale last year of the Eubanks collection, which was one that won a won a uh, won a champion of champions, mm-hmm. uh, there was a ninety-five graded numbered number ten, and it brought it brought over two and a half times SMQ. Yep, for the stamp. Yeah, because it's that rare. It's that rare and in, in high quality. 
Well, the other thing, too, it's that rare and high quality. Um, Bobby Prager, shout out to Bobby Prager, Gary Postner Incorporated, great company. He actually had a collector who was looking for a mint number 10 and called me up because, you know, I have a bunch. and said, do you have a mint number 10? And I said, I have never seen a mint number 10, you know, in good condition. I've seen, I have a mint number 10 that has a thin so deep that it almost makes a big hole in it. Mm. But it's totally uncollectible, but it's a number 10 and it's mint. But it is just an incredibly scarce stamp because number 10s are incredibly scarce. Yeah, and again, we need to emphasize this is number 10, not number 10A. Yeah, oh, that's a that's a really, really good because point. Because I think most collectors don't make that distinction when they're actually looking yeah. for a stamp for their collection. So what, what year was it that they added the 10As? It was just a, uh, it maybe three long. years ago? Yeah. Yeah. So, so all of them were listed number 11s. You had number 11 with inner lines, number 11 without inner lines. It was like just a classification in Scott's. Well, I think I, I think I have a 2015 specialized catalog, and it's got the A's um, both for 10 and 11. Yeah, I think it was about so I 15. Think, yeah. I think that was the first specialized catalog that had that. So what they did was the one cent. There are seven different cat, uh, seven different classifications in what five different numbers. They duplicated that with number tens and elevens, making stamp collecting far more complicated, which is exactly what I'm against. But you know you have U.S. number five. You have U.S. number 5A, which are type 1s, and then sort of type 1s. Then you have number 6, you have number 7, then you have two types of number 8, and then you have number 9, and then all these have different sub-varieties inside of them. So the U.S. number 11 collectors, of which I'm one, you know, uh, I say, uh, hey, why don't we classify them this way, which I was totally against. But they said, yeah, we're going to do the three center like we do the one center. So U.S. number 10 and 11 do not have inner frame lines. They, they didn't go in there and recut them. It, it wasn't, you know, like I said, the artistry of it, the engraving, the trying to make the impression better and the color better and the picture better. So, so number 10 and number 11 do not have inner frame lines. So number 10 is the very first printings, and number 11 is actually the very last printings. And in between you have number 10A, which are the number 10s that were recut to try to make them look better, and then number 11s, which they took those plates, changed the color, turned them from number 10s into number 11s strictly because of the color, and then after a while said, screw this, we're not going through recutting all the frame lines. So plate number ones are number 10s and 10As and number 11s, or excuse me, number 11As, but no number 11s came from plate one. Plate two has number 10As, number 11As, number three has only 11As, then you hit number four, which is that period, 
They're all number 10s. Number five, this is... It, it, actually, that's a good story. I'll tell that in a second. Number five has all in cut, recut inner frame lines. Then number six, seven, and eight don't, because again, they said, screw this, start printing. Cash, you said plate four, or number 10s, plate four. There's no plate fours that are number 10s. I'm sorry. I'm, did I say number 10 or number 11? You said, you said that plate fours are all number 10s. So I am number sorry, 11s. number 11s. Which, by the way, plate number four originally didn't have a plate number on it also. So that's a cool little thing. Um, so 5E is a number 10. Yes, 5 early is a number 10. So here's why they uh, put numbers on the plates. Is Topan, Carpenter, and Kessler, who were in Philadelphia, who, by the way, were in the same building as the biggest drug company in the country, which was uh, Dr. Jane and Sons. So just little yell out there for the revenue collectors. They printed. They had their print shop there. They didn't store the plates there. The U.S. government stored the plates. So they would put them on the train, ship them back to Washington, D.C. They'd ship them back and forth. In the end, they didn't because they were printing so many stamps. But that's why plate number zero never got a number is because way later, and this goes back to Wilson Hume, um, he was a great stamp collector. The Hume collection was a big Hume, uh, thing. When they printed the 1876 reissues, they shipped all the plates to the printing company to say, here, see if you can use these. Well, they got a plate that had busted, had a big, huge piece missing out of it. It came in two pieces, literally two pieces. And so that was what happened to plate number zero. It broke. And that's and it broke so early that um, they never put a plate number on it. And they used it for a relatively short period of time. And then it busted. Plate number five was the same thing. They printed US number 10 A's with it. And then all of a sudden it disappears. And then in 1855 it reappears with a big old crack in it. And so they printed it until the crack got so big that they said, okay, we've gotten as much wear out of this thing. We don't want it to actually bust. It didn't actually bust because we know that it, still, it was still intact in 1876. But it has a big, huge bust in the bottom and a bunch of stress cracks around throughout the rest of it. And so uh, that's what happened with those plates. So... We know plate number zero is in two pieces, and plate number five was taken off because it just got too bad. So I asked this question uh, to Kaj, and I'll put it to us again, and that is, what is the holy grail of collecting 1851-1857 issues? Other than the first day covers. Oh, yes, we must... Say that that would be the Holy Grail, obviously. <laughs> well, it's holy, my Holy Grail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Albert? Uh, no, I was going to say the first day covers were the Holy Grail, personally. Yeah, we were cover collectors at heart, but no, besides, I, the, besides the first days, what's... There is a color variety that was printed in uh, 1856. 
and it's called Plum. And it is not the most valuable one. And I'll tell you why I'm in a second, but the Plum stamp, and if everybody like pictures in your head, the color of a plum, whatever color you're picturing, that's not it. Because this has nothing to do with a plum. I have no clue what plum. It had to be like, um, he should have called it rotting plum or plum left out in the sun after, you know, right before it raisins or something like that. I've always felt that that shade should have been called prune rather than plum. Yeah, prune would be much, much better. It's much closer if you think about what a prune looks like than than what a plum looks like. For me, it is the exact color of wet beach sand. When a wave comes in and then it goes out, the color of the sand after the water goes out, that's plum. And obviously, that's nothing to do with plum. But this is a very rare it is a, shade. It's a rare, distinctive shade. Now, there's a plum number 11 in the catalog. Is that a different shade? Nope. It's It, it appears in, in the plum is number 11 and number 11A. It could be either one. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a more valuable co- uh, color, which is pink. I don't like that color at all because... It's not really distinctive. It's rare, but it has nothing else going for it. It's difficult to expertize. Um, The color sort of uh, over the past, I'm going to say 15 years, the line where it's pink versus not pink versus rose red um, has been blurred. So there's partially because of the death of of the most important color expert. Um, Dr. Aminette. Yeah. When Doc, he was like the referee. If you go to a ball game, you know, and the pitcher throws a pitch, and you up in the stand can say, oh, that's a ball, or that's a strike, or whatever. But the only opinion that really matters is the umpire. Yeah. Nobody else's opinion matters. You can have a different opinion, but it doesn't matter. Well, Bill Aminette was the uh, was the umpire on pink and he was incredibly strict with his death other people have come in and they haven't been as strict i'm still very strict i will only certify a plum or excuse me only certify a pink if it hits the pink i will not give it any variance plum is different plum is so distinctive that it either is one or it isn't we were talking at lunch about shades of other stamps, including some of the Washington Franklin heads and some of the 1938 and later regular issues. And once again, having exact reference is very, very important. And so I I congratulate Cash for being very, very strict on on what he calls a pink in the three-cent 51, the 57s. Well, I mean, the only thing you have to do to destroy the value is to get a bunch of borderline ones and call them pink. And then all of a sudden, there's a hundred more of them hitting the market and it destroys the value. You know, heaven forbid you put a thousand of them out there. And the second thing is, in my head, okay, well, first of all, I have pink. What was the pink that was advertised? There was a pinkish pink, or the pinkest pink. Yes. And I forget who made it, but it was... Um, 
researched this pigment and I have it sitting on my desk. I have the pinkest pink and the blackest black. And the pinkest pink is pink. It's like the ultimate Valentine card. And the pink of a US number 11 or 11A is honestly nothing like it. It's, you would not confuse it. It's still a little um, toward the reddish orange? Well, it's pretty clear that it's a rose red that has something with it. Maybe it, they put too much oil in it and it diluted the color or something like that. Mm-hmm. Now you asked about you asked about what is what is the holy grail of three cent collectors. I would say for me personally, it would be the Dawson cover because that is oh yeah that is a, that is <laughs> that is three cent fifty ones paying the U.S. postage, accompanied by a a a, um, a two cent and five cent mission Hawaiian missionary. So those are that, that to me is the the holy grail if yeah. you're going to talk about about number 11 covers the cover is so famous that they put it on a souvenir sheet for u.s stamps yeah. <laughs> and re- remember it was found in a it was found in new york in a furnace and it has scorch marks on it mm-hmm. as well as a number of the other covers including the stripper three of the 13 cent that uh, is now in the smithsonian collection that that was when you say it was found in the furnace that wasn't pulled from a furnace and saved that was a fire that just burned out yeah. and left some residues, and these, the covers survived because of that. For many years, I bought um, Melissa Wheeler's father, uh, Fred, had a cle- very, very good collection of wine that was sold in Seagulls in the early 2000s. And the one thing I bought in there was a usage of, it was a stampless Dawson cover that didn't have any scorch marks in it, and all the markings were in red. But I finally, somebody wanted it too much, so I finally sold it. <laughs> so that, the poor man Dawson cover. That was, I think that's, it, it brought a lot of money when I finally sold it. it yeah, brought, but it didn't bring what the... No, but, but the, to bring, but, but, it, but a cover that, that those markings sent to somebody else would be like a two or $2,500 cover. Right. When this cover was sold, it brought over $5,000. Mm-hmm. Well, that's like my first day cover. I have actually two first day covers. One is stampless that I paid $800 for. And the other one, which has a stamp in it, it was 12,000. So there's a big difference between stampless and stamped because unfortunately we're stamp collectors. We're gonna have to get you a one cent circular usage. That'll fill it up, fill that oh. whole thing up. <laughs> That'd be, that would be a very impressive page. Yeah, Let, uh, let's talk about first day real quick. Um, it's a first day, July 1st, because they reduced the postage rate. And a lot of people say they reduced it from five cents to three cents. That's not correct. They reduced it a whole lot more because it used to be five. It went from five cent to three cent, less than 300 miles. It went from 10 cents to to three cents for over 300 miles. So if you sent a letter from Charleston, South Carolina to Virginia, that's over 300 miles. And a lot of people did that. That was a 10 cent to three cent reduction. So the reduction was actually very, very significant. Uh, And that happened on July 1st. 
and for over three thousand or three three thousand, right? Mm-hmm. Was it three thousand? Yep. Yeah, so they went from over 300 having a surcharge to over 3,000 having a surcharge. And that was much easier because it, it was six cents then right. to go to the other coast. From California to New York was six cents. Yep. And then later on they said, we can't do it for six, so they raised it to ten. And to find a cover with a pair of three cents, 1851s or 1857s? Well, 1851s probably, right? Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have the others. But anyway, the, that that's a nice item. The six cent rate covers. And a lot of them, uh, it was very odd too because going to Utah and then to California, you could work it out. It had to go overland. It was the six cent rate, so they you'd see a marking on it saying overland, right. and then some of them it said noisy carriers. Those were the people who uh, shipped it across Panama. Well, did they ship it across Panama or Nicaragua? One or the other. Noisy is Panama. Oh, okay, it's the Vanderbilt stuff that's got the uh, uh, via Nicaragua ahead of the mails yeah. uh, that 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 go through Nicaragua, Lake Nicaragua. Lake Nicaragua. And as a Western cover collector, I would say the three cent rate from Salt Lake City to the east is a nice, rare, scarce um, cover because they argued, Brigham Young um, argued as governor of the territory that the rate was trans. Trans Rocky Mountain and the the, the, the uh, six cent and then later the ten cent rates and he said Utah's in the Rocky Mountains therefore it's just the three cent rate not trans <laughs> not trans Rocky <laughs> yeah. well I mean he was right across the yeah. <laughs> and so. there's a there's a lot of uh, Nevada California sort of rates that are really yeah. Very interesting like that that you've shown me a bunch of that. Yeah. The, what was the one? Camp California? Was it? No. Camp it something. Was, um, was, it, was it Fort Bridger? Fort. Okay. Fort Bridger with the three cent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and at that time, Fort Bridger um, was uh, considered to be in Utah territory, but it's actually up there in Wyoming, I think. Yeah. And then we have... Ten cent covers that originated in Nevada, which was part of, of Utah at the time, but they are paying the ten cent rate because they don't live in the Rocky Mountains, even though it was in Utah territory. Yep. So it's just kind of interesting when he gets to the rates. What's your favorite item in your collection, other than the first day cover? <clears throat> Well, I have a bunch, but one of the items that, you know, you, you talk about uh, Holy Grails. I have a number 25A from plate number three, which has the extra lines recut, the graded grade 80. And U.S. number 25 and 25As that get any grade are really super scarce. 
because the centering on them is so terrible. Um, that one, I think, is one of my scarcest things that I would... It, it's probably a unique item. Um, the, yeah. late, the late collector and dealer, Stanley Piller, who had a great collection of 351 to 57, sold at, which he sold at Seagulls in the 90s, he always said that one a 25 that would clear on all four sides is truly a rarity, and he felt that the only way that it, they could really exist would be from the corners, yep. one of the four corners. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, um, the stamps were so close on the sheet that the width of the perforation, if it hit in the middle, cut both stamps. Yeah. So the, to have the perforations clear the design completely all the way around would be a great rarity. I'm always happy with a 25 that I can see the lines yeah. all the way. Well, if you recall, we had uh, Gary Greenberg. We called him during the podcast to put him on the podcast. I negotiated. It was a strip of three from the bottom of plate number four. And the bottom of this column just sort of like moved over to the left too much. Literally touching on the left side. And then on the right side had a big, huge, giant gap. So on the left side, you couldn't have perforations that cleared the design. It would just be impossible. I mean, forget about just the width of the perforation. There is no place to put it. And that actually occurred many times throughout a lot of these sheets, which is why they dumped. That's why plate number 25A is scarce, is it wasn't laid out for perforations. And so they said, get rid of these, make new plates with good spacing so we can put the perforations in. And then you got U.S. number 26s. So Gary was so traumatized by that negotiation that now he sells currency. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I have a five-lined recut, which is a scarce variety of one of the stamps comes from the bottom row. And that got a grade 95 but it's an early impression with great super color. I'm honestly surprised it only got a 95 because it has such great eye appeal. But it is, that one too is really, really, really nice. And uh, that's probably a unique item too. So getting a lot of the position pieces in really good condition is kind of damn near impossible. Then I have another, I have a strip of four from plate number three, again, where they were recutting these frame lines and everything. And it's a horizontal strip that shows all four varieties. And it shows all the spacing. And and I'm sure those, there's probably other ones out there. But again, I haven't seen them. That's, so a lot of position pieces, I would say, are my favorites. Now, what would you say, what would, would you please discuss um, who Dr. Carol Chase was? Oh, uh, Dr. Carol Chase was a very famous, uh, d um, did he, op he, he was in World War I as an ambulance driver or a triage driver? He, he was a doctor in World War I. And... When he came back after the war, he started collecting 
number uh, 11s and 11As and 10s and 10As. And he just basically had this question of why do these stamps exist this way? And so he did the initial research on all this stuff and he started plating. And he said, you know, I, you can figure out what position a stamp comes from by what recuts are there. How are the outer frame lines cut? How are the inner frame lines cut? It's like every stamp is a fingerprint. And he, by finding pairs and multiples and stuff, he figured out, yeah, this one is from position number four. Whenever you see this recut, that's from position number four. He didn't know what plates they were from. He goes, this is position number four. And then he basically expanded it until he figured out how many plates there were. And not just number 10s and 11s, but 26s and stuff like that, too. Uh, eventually, he was one of the people who figured out how many plates there were because he didn't have plate numbers yet. Then when he found the plate numbers, you know, stamps with, you know, plate number eight showing, then all of a sudden he goes, okay. This is plate number eight. Let's see which one this matches with. Ah, oh, okay. This is plate number eight. All these positions here are plate. And so he reconstructed all the plates. He didn't finish them before he died um, because it was monumental task. But he was able to go through all the plates and figure out that they existed and where the major recuts and stuff were. And so he's sort of the uh, godfather of U.S. number 11 collecting. And he put out a book. And uh, it's called The Three Cent Stamp of 1851. And uh, a lot of his initial stuff was dead on correct. And he was just a smart guy who was able to figure this stuff out. Now, the major society that, that focuses on the collecting of... Um, Stamps before 1900 is called the U.S. Philatelic Classic Society, but wasn't originally called the Three Cent 1851 to 57 unit. I don't know, Albert. Let me ask, Albert. Was it originally called the 18? 18- <laughs> no, I figured that you should say. <laughs> I'd rather say it. I'd rather throw you a fastball. Oh, okay. Big, uh, big, big pitch that you can hit for a home run. Yes, Albert. That's exactly what it was called. <laughs> Yes, they, uh, the original Classic Society was a collecting society for the three-cent 1851s. And I think the other thing that, that collectors should know, or prospective collectors, is there are a lot of postal history out there that has Dr. Chase's notes written in very, very fine uh, script on the back of the covers, usually in the lower right of the back of the cover. So don't go out and erase everything when you do, because a lot of <laughs> yeah. that are, are very, very important notes about what makes a cover very interesting, whether it might be the color or the recut or the cancellation. Yeah, I've seen people do that with Ashbrook. Yeah. Er- erasing Ashbrook's notes on the back of it. It's like, what the hell? Stop! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, it, definitely on... The classic covers. Don't so, don't erase the backs without checking yeah. with somebody. So uh, everybody should go into their album now and look at their number ten and number eleven, and uh, see if they actually are number tens and number elevens. What colors they are? Basically, the Scott's catalog gives you a vast amount of the information to accomplish this. Anything else? 
Well, we can talk, since we're going to talk about 57s next week, we'll talk about it later, later on. Otherwise, I'd start asking you about the experimental perforation items. Yep, yep. There's a lot of stuff to go over with these. I mean, we, we they, Carol Chase wrote a book about it. If we wanted to do a five-hour podcast on this, we, we absolutely could. But honestly, the uh, wet market out there has some bats that just came in. And uh, I want to see if I can pick some up. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun. But now the time has come to go. If this still clown was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! You have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.